What's good, y'all? Welcome to Cult America, where we discuss the weird, wonderful, and worrying rituals and sacrifices that make America great. I'm Carl Joseph Black, a Brooklyn native born into the cult that is America. And I'm Lisa Charlotte, a migrant who totally bought into the cult from afar. I was just laughing at our producer, Samori, because every time you do the intro, he follows along with his hands. Oh, shit. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty I'm, good. I'm going to watch it for next time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just like, it's, it's really funny. Um, cool. All right. America or cult, let's go. All right. Members of this group are cut off from the outside world. Cult. Yeah, it is a cult. Yes. It is a cult, but I do want to put a note here that America is very insular, and we're going to get into it this episode because it's the first episode we're doing where the cult behavior does line up, but, like, it's not quite so severe. Mm. Like, it's... We'll we'll go into it a bit more. I'm not going to say America isn't completely cut off, but I don't think it's in... It's like the difference between hard and soft power, you know? Like, in a soft way, America is quite insular and cut off, but... Anyway. I want to hear your take on that. Yeah, we're going to talk about it later. After the context of the episode, we're going to talk about it. Yeah. This week's cult is the Family International, who are also known as Children of God, which is one of many names. So these guys went through a lot of rebrands. They started out in Huntington Beach, California in 1968 by a guy called David Berg or Father David to the members. Originally called Teens for Christ, which is just like the biggest red flag. Then they were children of God. Then they were the family of love. And then they became the family. And then they went international and they became the family international in 2004. Oh. So this is like, they did some Facebook stuff. They're like, you know what? It's going to be fine. We got to batter up. Yeah. But what we're going to do is we're going to change the name. No one's going to know. That's it. Now we're meta. Let's go. <laughs> so it's had some really famous members, including River and Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, and- Joaquin Phoenix? Was- yeah. Oh, he wow. was in it. I think he grew up in it. Oh, shit. I think maybe all of them did, but I'm not sure. Rose McGowan and Jeremy Spencer of Fleetwood Mac wow. were in it. They are an apocalyptic cult with some Christian evangelism elements. And they kind of like infused it like a lot of cults at this time. Like there are a lot of cults that started in the 60s that were like really in the counterculture vibes. Yeah. And yeah, they had the foretelling of a dictator called the Antichrist. One World Government, all this stuff. You know, we've heard it all before. Anyway. It's interesting. I think this might be like the third episode where we have like an actor or actress Mm -hmm. part of a cult. And I'm trying to figure out what the vibe. I mean, there are a lot of actors and actresses. I would say that like, and I'm going to say this as like someone who is a singer. I do think that like musicians and actors and artists are all pretty dramatic. Mm. Like I know when I was like deep in my singing, I feel like I felt things deeper, you know, when you're like connected to art like that. Yeah. So maybe that's it. Could be. They're searching for belonging or like something that feels like not shallow if they're living in that shallow life. Right, right, right. Maybe our listeners have some thoughts on it. I'd love to hear that. For real. There was a lot of criticism for sexual assault of minors in the cult because their philosophy was God was love and love is sex. So sex should not be limited. Wow. That's a workaround. Shit. Anyway, the thing I really want to get into in this, which I th- thought was the most interesting thing about this cult, is they employed something called flirty fishing. Mm. Have you ever heard this expression before? Nah. What's do you want to guess what it is? Uh, do you flirt with a bunch of people until somebody likes you? I thought you were going to say flirt with a bunch of fish. <laughs> <laughs> 
That was my next one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so it's a form of evangelism by sexual intimacy. So the terms derived from the New Testament, from Matthew 4.19, in which Jesus tells two fishermen that he will make them fishers of men. So basically, women in the children of God were called fisherwomen, and they would apply their sex appeal on fish, i.e. men from the outside world, to try to seek donations and bring people into the message of Jesus. So they would have sex with outsiders uh-huh. so that they can join uh-huh. their family international. Or donate money. Or donate money. And so that's like that's like loophole prostitution. Yeah, for sure it is. Yo. And so they had to like keep really like detailed journals about this. And so according to sources, over 200,000 men were fished and over 10,000 babies were born to cult women from 1971 to 2001. Of men who never joined. I mean, I think well, maybe some, some of them joined, did. Yeah. It was it was used for not just like people joining, but for financial support, political protection, all of that kind of thing. Oh. And speaking of prostitution loopholes, they did actually also do that. So it was called <laughs> escort servicing. Yo, what? So it's like making flirty fisher fisher. What would you call them? Like fisher women. No, but like the men, the men who were victims of the flirty fishing, flirty, flirty catches, flirty catch fishes, flirty fish. They were, they were catches. They were making them pay. And so they would, these women would work as call girls for escort agencies or freelance. So they would do that for money for the cause. Mm -hmm. And then if it came that they could, you know, share this, their mission and their story, they would. Yeah. So imagine calling a call girl to get off and she's like, she makes you come and then she's like she's like do you want to hear the word <laughs> of family international today exactly and you're like huh <laughs> yo she's not telling him at the start she's talking about the hand when he's like susceptible yeah she's like yeah she's like you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna come yeah yeah yeah, yeah. listen to the word <laughs> <laughs> And so, again, with the Bible verses, which is my favorite thing, is like the the <laughs> the the use of Bible verses to convince them that this was okay. They also use Corinthians six nineteen to twenty, saying that women's bodies didn't really belong to them; they have been bought by Jesus through His crucifixion with a price. Yo, yeah. So women were reminded not to let their pride in, and this was all forgotten that their body wasn't theirs anyway; it was to service the Lord, having sex with men with random men um they they did actually try it they tried it with men too like they tried to get men to like do it sleep with men or sleep with women i think sleep with men and women but it didn't really pay off yeah we don't we just don't look as good (laughs) it's true it's whatever the reason why i told this cult for this week is because members were also denied music or television or culture or any contact with the outside world. So they had no idea how the world worked. The only thing they were taught is how to manipulate the systemites. So they called the world like outside of the cult, the system. Yeah. So they learned how to like manipulate outsiders like social workers so they could get money, but that's it. So aside from that, they were completely cut off from the world. In a very broad stroke conceptual way, I could see why you felt like this was very comparative to America. (laughs) I mean, I'm not comparing this cult to America. It's not compared, but it's like, I'm just like, okay, so we get, so we drown ourselves in our own culture via television, internet, music, all types of other shit. It wasn't until I would say recently that 
traveling to other countries became like a very popular, popular thing to do. Mm. And even when we do travel to other countries, we ask people if they speak English. And then if they don't speak English, we get kind of upset because we, because like, how do you not speak English? Right? <laughs> yeah. The no idea how the world works was, is probably the thing that's most with America. The cult behavior we're discussing this week, just so we've got it out there is subservience to the leader or group requires members to cut ties with family and friends and radically alter the personal goals and activities they had before joining the group. Mm. And so we are talking about the migrant experience, which I just want to preface by saying, I don't think that the migrant experience is exactly all of that in that yeah. level of, you know, extremists, but there are, there are elements. Tell me what your, I guess, considering we're going to be talking about more of assimilation and stuff in future episodes. What is your understanding of the migrant experience from a, not legal standpoint, but kind of, but like in terms of like the logistics of it as like a first generation, like did your parents share a lot of that with you or? Yeah. yeah. So like I watched my mom become like a citizen in the United States and that shit takes forever as first because my mom didn't become a citizen because she had me here. I just was automatically a citizen. And they were like, well, I guess you got to take care of your kid so you could stick around if you feel like it. <laughs> right? She then also married my dad, who also wasn't a citizen yet. But he became a citizen before my mom. He became a citizen. I think my dad became a citizen in the 90s. But my mom didn't become a citizen until 2008. So it was just so long and she always had to like, you know, go to INS and like say that she loves it here. And, you know, she had to know stuff. Motherfuckers were just always checking on her and my mom was always on her P's and Q's about mm -hmm. like paying her taxes mm -hmm. and all types of shit. Because she was like, if I fuck this up, they finna send me home. You grown now. Mm -hmm. Like, so, but the most interesting thing for me was just like when I became a certain age, I was able to identify how much my mom was influenced by where she came from. I also, from that age, I was also able to, until now, even still now, I'm actually able to see how much my mom has become so American. And the most interesting part about it is my mom has not been back to Haiti since she left. My mom left Haiti in 1988. Wow. She hasn't been back once. And... Arguably, my mom, shit, I think my mom's been here longer she's, than she's been in her country. Mm. So, like, my mom's almost more American than she is Haitian. Culturally, I would say. Like, like based on how long she's been alive. Right? And my mom always talks about how she's not going back. So, she's going to be here longer than she would have been in Haiti. Watching her first just, like, learn how to... We learned how to speak English together. So, like, watching her learn how to speak English watching her accent become a bit more Americanized and also just watching her take on a lot of American norms has been super interesting to see because you're not from here. Yeah, so usually what you'll see is um, folks that are from, some, from other places, they'll always talk about like how much they love it where they come from. Like mm -hmm. even you, you talk about how, you know, all the great things that you've experienced in Australia. And my mom barely talks about that. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I talk about that. But, like, when I'm in Australia, I'm wanting to be back in New York. Mm. 
so like, I think it's just like a sense of, and especially because like, we're talking about it and you've, you haven't been there. Like I have issue with my country too. Mm. It's just like, you're not really coming over here talking about that. Got like it. I, I would say that it's demonstrated in my actions that I left, that I have issues. Okay. With. Okay. Got it. You know, like I don't need to like, yeah. You don't need to be like, I don't like it there. Cause it's like, clearly like, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not yeah, in Australia yeah. being like, wow, Australia, we're so great. Like, as I said, like I didn't really Got celebrate it. Australia day, but when I'm over here, it's like, oh, it is kind of nice sometimes to like, be with people you have a shorthand with and like understand. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, continue on about your mom. I don't want yeah. I want to hear the rest of that. Yeah. So like my mom, my mom doesn't want to go back to Haiti because one, she has like some tough memories in Haiti, but also because Haiti's like been fucked up ever since she left. Mm. So she's just like, yo, America's been good to me and like literally has never been bad to me. So like I'm Haitian, but I'm American too. Like that's her shit. Like, Pledge of Allegiance says it. You know what I mean? All that covers all the citizenship bases. You know, so, um, so yeah. So, it's just interesting to see, like, her migrant experience. Yeah. Let's talk a bit bit about yours. Mine's a little more recent and personal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And it's even hard. Like, I'm being a migrant is definitely, and especially because I moved over here. So I decided to come here initially before Trump was elected. And then the whole time I lived here, basically Trump was in power. And it was a very different experience than being a migrant. Mm. I realized when I started this podcast with you, I had always spoken about extremist behavior and I'd always been pretty like, I think we have a pretty balanced, but like opinionated about America or Australia or wherever. And like, I think it's important to talk about the good and the bad and all of that. It was only when I got on mic to talk about it that I realized that I just so lost my voice because it's been kind of a wild experience the last few years. There's a lot of policies that have been implemented. So you have to give over your social media information now whenever you apply for a visa. So I was really scared about what I would say on Twitter, especially about Trump, because he just kind of felt like the sort of guy that would like read a bad tweet and be like, get the fuck out. It's the P's and Q's thing, but it's a different level. It's like, I didn't even feel like I could be. You could speak again. I could speak freely in America, the place of like the land of the free. And you kind of couldn't like, you know, my phone would be searched at the border or like, it's just all very scary. And so it changed. And I've spoken to a lot of people like this. It completely changed their online behavior since this was brought in because, you know, with Biden, I don't care. I feel like I've probably got tweets about, I, I wasn't rooting for Biden in the primaries and I've probably got tweets about it. And I don't think Joe Biden cares. Like it's free speech. Like I've chosen to live here. I think that's enough, but yeah. So on a more like process level, I've been on a non-immigrant visa the whole time I've been in the U S. So I have like different rights. The whole system is incredibly complicated. I won the green card lottery in 2020 and then the immigration ban came into effect and I was stuck in Australia for six months and then I kind of got back in on a technicality because the whole thing was such a shit show that they didn't notice. Because usually if you apply for an immigrant visa, that's it. You can never have a non-immigrant visa again. Or you have to like really apply for it and prove that you're not trying to live here. Yeah. And so I lost my green card as a result of all of the immigration bans from The Trump. one you won? Yeah. Wow. I lost it because it's time sensitive. So like people, why would you know about it unless you had to know about it? But basically like the lottery, it's like every year, like I think 20 million people enter and like 100,000 win, but only 50,000 people get it. 
And so you win a place in line based on your region. Now, for someone from Australia, it's the odds are better. So it's like a 5% chance or something. But even then you get a place in line and then your number is called a certain month. And then like once you hit that month, then you can apply. And then you have to like have a high school education. You have to have a clean bill of health. You have to have police checks and all that. But like it's actually pretty like cheap and easy at that point. Yeah. You, don't need, you don't need a lawyer or anything. Yeah. But if you don't get it by the end of September, you don't get it. That's it. It's done. And so there's been a lot of ongoing court cases about it because a whole bunch of people won and like they had a place in line, they had their interview scheduled and then Trump was like, not no immigrants. Wow. And so nobody could apply for this time sensitive visa. So this court case is still ongoing. What's wild in my situation is that I entered again for 2022 and I won it again, which I've only entered twice and I've won twice. So I think y'all want me here. Wait, so like. It's a, it's a very low chance that that would ever happen. After the episode. You trying to play the money lottery? Yeah, I mean, maybe. Yeah, maybe I should. Because, like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, these odds you keep striking. Like, I know, I know. It's I, wild. I'm trying. You know, we hosting this show. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Me and Samori got bills. Oh, yeah, I got bills. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you got bills. Like, look. Well, that's my other thing. I mean, let's I've been Let's play the money <laughs> lottery. What's up? I mean, we should. But that's the other thing. Like, I've been limited in my capacity to make money, too. Because mm-hmm. with a non-immigrant, with the visas I've been on, I can only work for one person. Wow. And so I can't, I don't have, like, freedom of where I work or how much I work. Shit. And, like, with the pandemic and everything, it's rough. It's been a lot. Which is why I get quite upset if people ever, like, if I criticize the healthcare system and someone's like, if you don't like it, why don't you just leave? And I'm like, you don't know how fucking stressful this right, is. Right, Because it's, it's an ongoing stress. It's so... John Oliver actually did an amazing segment on this, like the underlying stress of being like beholden to like the government. Yeah. And you know, some person could just be like having a bad day and yeah. just be like, nah, that's it. Wow. Like, you just don't know. Like, yeah. you could rub someone the wrong way. You could do one wrong thing. Like, yeah. they could find this podcast and be like, the fuck is this shit? I don't you like can't it. Be, you can't be saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Get the fuck out. So it's, it's like, a, it's a very stressful thing. And like, yeah, it's been very rough, but. Let's fingers crossed for me. I'm just not leaving until I get my green card now. Yeah. Like it, it's easy to do it in Australia, but I'm just too scared to leave again. Yeah. Cause you just, cause don't last know time I left, happened. I was stuck for six months paying New York rent like a chump, by the way. Everybody else was just going with the moratorium. I and I was like, like but again, it's the P's and Q's, right? You don't want to do the wrong thing. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't want to like do the wrong thing. Yeah. I want to be able to like show you my landlord that I had in the pandemic who's like, yeah, Lisa paid her rent in the pandemic. Right. Because they want to, sh- they want to see that She'd you can be afford an to live here. She's an excellent citizen. Exactly. She's actually better than the rest of these black ass <laughs> motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, there's another citizen land tenant who's like, I ain't leaving. <laughs> like the person in the house who was supposed yes. to live in? Yes. Straight, I ain't leaving and I ain't paying. What's yeah, up? Yeah, exactly. We've had, me and my roommate we're supposed to live in a house if oversharing with our listeners we're supposed to live in a house and because of the moratorium on rent the person who was a previous tenant just won't leave and she's been there for a year she hasn't paid anything she had a three bed three bedroom two bathroom house by herself not paying rent for a year it's a lifestyle for a year i'm trying i just to be couldn't bold. even like i would just feel like bad about myself all the time yeah like all the time i want that level of bold yeah like how do you like? <laughs> how do you get that audacity? And how can I have some? Because low key, I could use it. Because like know? everybody, we could use a little bit of that. Like you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I could use a little bit of. I don't want to pay this month. Eat it. But I can't even energy. imagine like the the like stress of your mother who had her 
whole family and children here. Like, if I go back, like, I'd be very sad to go if I had to leave. Mm-hmm. But I don't have, like, kids. I don't have, like, my country is, like, very safe and lovely place to live. Yeah. I just don't want to live. It's just got less opportunity for me yeah. to do cool stuff. But, like, it's a, it's a all, by all intents and purposes, a fine place to live. But I can't even imagine the stress of, like, on top of that, like, being from somewhere that you just really can't and don't want to go back to my mom had no political opinions until she became a citizen yeah i'm not surprised like my mom so literally when she became she became a citizen i think it might have been like september september 08 nice and then like right on time first (laughs) thing she did she said i'm going to vote for obama (laughs) i was like like she used to talk about like the Clintons and she would talk about like the war and how the war isn't, she doesn't like it. But like my mom would never ever be like, my mom became a citizen during Facebook. Like she just started doing mad shit. I was like, <laughs> I was like, you on Facebook now? She's like, yeah. like I'm going to say whatever I want. What they like, going to do? <laughs> she on Facebook reposting shit that Clintons ruined Haiti. I feel like, pretty yeah. <laughs> I'm like, who are you? In in New York, because like any criminal thing is counted against you. Yeah. And like you're just so scared all the time about breaking the law. Like I think about it sometimes because you can't get good edibles here, but you can get them in California. And I'm like, could I just take, like, they're legal in California, they're legal in New York. Like, could I just go get edibles? No, it's federal. Yeah. And if they get you, you're in trouble. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. If I was an American citizen, totally would. And like growing up, growing (laughs) up in Brooklyn, there would always be like these whispers in the Haitian community. Oh, INS is picking up random people. Oh, I heard such and like when you didn't hear or didn't see a person for a long time, they would say the INS got them. Like, like it would be like the INS would be like the fucking boogeyman and shit. Yeah, they're not coming for white women in their 30s who are living in Brooklyn, I don't think. Yeah. And like, you know. Haitian immigrants yeah. are like looked upon as yeah. like a certain like they're like when I was growing up because people knew I was Haitian they would call me a Haitian booty scratcher and shit like just being Haitian just it was just like yeah. it was like yo you guys came on a boat and like y'all got no country that's why you're here so if you act crazy we'll send you back home like that was the energy and like my mom was just always scared about that type of shit but like one of the things my mom did was she had Canadian citizenship. Oh, nice. So she, like, scooped up Canadian citizenship as, like, an insurance policy. That's good. Then it's at least close. Yeah. So she was like, all right, cool. Like, I'll just go back to Montreal if they boot me or whatever. Yeah. But, like, now that she's an American citizen, she's like, yeah, I will go. I will move to Canada if they vote for Trump again. I'm like, <laughs> look at you, bro. Like, What an evolution. <laughs> so emboldened. <laughs> so emboldened. Right? And so. So, like, I come across so many different people, especially, like, in law school. We had a lot of migrants. Some people who literally didn't have visas. Well, not necessarily. I don't think. No, they were DACA. They were DACA students. Yeah. And, like, even them, like, when the whole Trump and DACA thing was going down, they were, Mm -hmm. like, scared that they wouldn't be able to finish their, like, their their education, their legal education. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, shit. Like, these are some problems I never even thought about having because of the privilege that I, like, yeah, well, before DACA, here. those kids, like, and we know some of them, I'm not going to mention by name, mm-hmm. who, like, missed out on opportunities for scholarships at university because yeah. they weren't, and they, it's not their fault. Yeah. Like, they were brought over here as teenagers. This is their home. They have nowhere else to go. Right. It's just really scary. Mm-hmm. But we should probably 
get a bit into the timeline because this is going to be a long episode but yeah. we have a lot of we have a lot to share mm-hmm. um cool so obviously like colonial america started in the 17th century we've been talking about pilgrims people seeking new world i feel like we've been over this part of american history so many times so the first wave of immigrants were from northern and western europe so like ireland germany there were some asian immigrants and actually what's interesting with the gangs of new york is there were a lot of Asian immigrants depicted in that, but at that time there were not that many Asian immigrants. Mm. But like that, they, they were coming sort of like in the 1800s. I think especially to San Francisco, and they were also the first people to have exclusion acts against them yes. in 1882, Chinese Exclusion Act, of course. So a lot of immigration policy, like a lot of other countries, including Australia, are focused around excluding particular groups at particular times. Yeah, and there's like always some sort of ethos or narrative surrounded around these types of migrants. So like one thing I read many years ago was that they would like associate marijuana with Mexicans. Oh, that's why it's called marijuana. Why do you think we use a freaking like Spanish name for that? Right. Like the whole reason they call it marijuana is because they wanted to associate so, it with Mexicans. So associated with them and like, and like people, like they would associate Chinese people with like like things that are dirty and like not well taken care of. COVID virus, perhaps. Right, you know what I mean. These things to like exclude these groups, and it's like so fucked up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because these things like they stick. Mm-hmm. They stick for really long periods of time. It's not like, oh, all right, we grew out of it. No, like there's an underlying bias that we acquire through them yeah. when we do that. And it's always like the demonization of groups to push a political objective. Yes. It's often that. So since 1882, the U.S. has deported more than 57 million people, mostly Latinos, but it also accepts more immigrants each year than any other country. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting relationship. So moving forward to the 1900s, in 1924, the Immigration Act created a quota system. Uh, it was around an outdated census, and so it gave a preference to Western Europeans. It prohibited Asian immigrants, so we're seeing a theme here. We're really going for white Americans, which I still think at that point didn't count people like Irish and mm-hmm. Italian and Greek and stuff right. as white. Um, Australia is really similar, actually. And the thing that's interesting about that and is that the system now for the visa lottery is also based on quotas. So it's basically like the only countries that can apply are countries where there are not, it's like you have to have a percentage of migrants who are living in America. So it's like countries with low representations in the U.S. are able to um, apply, but countries with bigger representations cannot. So Canadians oh. can't apply for the lottery. Wow. And it's interesting with Australians because Australia actually has specific visa program with the U.S. So yeah. we have a non-immigrant visa program. So I could basically just get a job, get a visa, work for two years. It cost me 200 bucks. I just have to like leave the country. Yeah. Get it, come back. It's like the easiest visa that exists. I think maybe the Canadian work visa as well. They're like similarly easy. Mm-hmm. So even though there are, what was it, 20,000 Australians in New York? Yeah. Most of them are not on immigrant visas. And so we're still counted as like, an underrepresented group in the U.S. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's why in particular countries it's, like, way harder, which is heartbreaking because, like, you're on the groups, like, on the group chats for all of the immigration, like, the diversity visa stuff. Yeah. And you have these people who have been waiting, like, 20 years to win, and they've won, and then Trump brings in this immigration ban. And then they don't make it. And then they can't come. Oh, uh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's got to be, like, 
Yo, I mean, I'm just waiting for you to go and do like research this court case and come back next week and (laughs) do an update for our listeners because it's been really interesting to follow. In 1965, they remove the quotas and they allow U.S. citizens, people who are living in the U.S. as citizens, to petition for family members to join, which is something that still exists now, I think. Yeah, we had that in my family. My grandfather came and like he was like, you're coming here. Yeah. And my dad was like, I'm good, bro. Like, I'm chilling. I got like four girlfriends. <laughs> this Haiti shit is lit, bro. I'm good. <laughs> I promise I'm good on this Haiti. He was like, you're coming here. Yeah. And then he had my dad come to the United States and finish high school. And then he was like, all right, dude, you're on your own. And he was like, like, bro, like, people don't even like me here. Like, my dad used to get picked on by Italians in high school because he went to a high school that was, like, predominantly Italian at the time. Yeah. And he had, like, a thick accent and was barely speaking English. Which now would be, like, everyone would be like, ooh, French accent. Right. So like, hot. They were just like, yo, you can't speak fucking English. Get out of here. Like, they just pick on him. And he was like, you brought me all the way here. I finished this fucking stupid school shit, and now you're telling me I'm on my own? <laughs> like, it was just so weird, but, like, that's how a lot of my family members came to the United States. So, like, my, my granddad had my aunt come first, then he had my dad, and then he had my uncle. Come. Yeah. Yeah. So this is probably going to piss off the powers that be because they did not set this up for Asians. Yeah. They set this up for white people. They oh. assumed that most people petitioning would be white. Ah. And so now it's like it comes under like fire for people being like, oh, they're just bringing all their family members and in. And the Haitians were like, word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and similarly, in the 1980s, the diversity visa program, which is the program that I hopefully will get my green card through, was created for Irish immigrants initially, mm. which now is, like, the thing that gets a lot of people from all over the world here. Yeah. I don't even know if Ireland apply for the green card uh, lottery anymore. But they also have... Ireland, it's funny, Ireland and Australia are, like, the two countries that have, like, the most agreements with the U.S. Mm. Like, I think even more so than Canada. The E3 visa is just for Irish and Australian, I think. Or maybe wow. just Australian. We have, like, a lot of special visa programs, like... Australia and Ireland are the only two places that can do, like, a working holiday, I think. Maybe Canada. But oh, it's, like, shit. only within 12 months after you finish your university degree. Okay. Uh, it's, like, a J-1 visa. That's the diversity visa program. Mm-hmm. In 1986, Reagan creates an amnesty policy. I don't know if you know anything about this, the Simpson-Mazzoli Act. No. Which allows almost 3 million undocumented immigrants to become citizens. So I know we're not a Reagan... Loving podcast, but yeah, that's pretty we cool. We don't fuck with Reagan over here. No, but, you know. In 1990, Bush Sr. increased the visa caps of the 1965 Act. So it's there are some good things that are done. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, like, immigration is a good thing for the economy. So, like, if things hadn't gone in a direction with the conservative parties, it would make sense. But Yeah. And, yeah, Mexicans made up over just half of the undocumented population, and they account for 9 out of 10 of the immigration arrests. Oh, I didn't know that. Nine out of ten. That's big numbers. That's staggering. Yeah. It's it's interesting because I know in Australia, most of the visa defectors are, like, white European citizens. And, like, no one's coming for them. Yeah. But people just, like, get a working holiday visa, then just don't leave. Mm. And just work illegally. So I imagine there's probably similar stuff here. I know a guy who, like, he's from the UK. He came here. His visa expired. He stayed here for ten years, undocumented, and then just got married. And they were like, oh, it's cool. You found a wife? Yeah. You're good. Because, like, you they're, like, super, they're like super critical. Like, my cousin married 
my, when my cousin got married, she actually had her her first attempt to marry her husband rejected. And what's interesting is she had been with her husband, like she has been dating her now husband since she was 15. Oh my God. And they were like, like no. that was her first and last boyfriend. Wow. They met like in the neighborhood. They met, um, he came here as, I think he was like nine or 10 when he came to the U.S. And they met at, like, this um, local, like, sports complex that was, like... In- Do you think that maybe they just thought that they were, like, childhood friends who were getting married for the visa? I don't know. Because, I- like, that's a lot of history. Because they usually want, like, documented, like, history and testimonials yeah. and all this stuff. Like, it's a big... It's a big... They did. And they provided all that yeah. information the first time. And they were like, we don't believe you. And then... And then they had a kid. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> she pulled up pregnant and they're like, okay. Yeah, for real. <laughs> oh my God. So speaking of people brought over as teenagers in 2001, and like, I'd be really interested to know exactly when in 2001, because that counts. Mm-hmm. There was an attempt to pass a dream act for undocumented immigrants by, who were brought to the U S by their parents, but it didn't pass. Wow. Yeah. But then in 2012, Obama signs the DACA act. Yeah. There's, a lot of kids coming in. Like, I think, like, in 2012, it was, like, 5,000 kids per month. In 2014, it was 8,000 of just kids, undocumented kids coming mm. in, which is just, you know, they have no... It, yeah, it's, it's but stressful. Like, like, for context, I would love to know the data. Like, where are the kids coming from? Mm. Because depending on where they are coming from, if we look at, like, international conflicts... Oh, yeah, for it's sure. It's likely... We, Obama's just like, look, we fucked up bad by pulling up to the Middle East or pulling uh-huh. up to this other country, wilding the fuck out and ruining everything. So let's just, like, let them come through, you know? Yeah, but also, like, if you're a kid, like, you're just going wherever your parents take yeah, you. Yeah, hell yeah. That's it's absolutely too. not your fault. Like, yeah. anyway, so weirdly in 2015, those numbers dropped, and then in 2016, they surged again, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And then we have Trump. Who said who was like, I'm just going to ban heaps of people. I'm banning everybody except for people from the Eastern European bloc. Yep. That's essentially what he said. He was like, if you're not from where my parents are from, don't come here. And he took a shit on every single country he could. He called Haiti a shithole. Mm-hmm. He called, like, Muslim countries. Afri- yeah. Banned all, like, heaps of Muslim countries. Venezuela, North Korea. Like, just countries you should not be banning freaking immigration from yeah. like let people get the fuck out of those of north korea and venezuela let them come and there was a lot of like um litigation because we talked about it a lot in law school because they counted it as a discriminatory ban because they used his rhetoric from his campaign where he said he was going to do a muslim ban mm. and you cannot ban based on creed you can't ban based it's on religious freaking yeah it's like it's like unconstitutional yeah it's unco- it's against the 14th amendment so like it was the reason why there was like a lot of struggle from mm. in the beginning from actually getting it to work which is why people thought it would never work and then it worked Shit it's fucking crazy wild i can imagine if i was just living in america and i wasn't like on the receiving end of dealing with the immigration stuff that it could seem like it's a lot of talk or that it's not affecting that many people. Yeah. But even just like the way that immigration was deprioritized, like there is no stuff. Like there was a point where like KCC, which is like the processing center in the U S literally unplugged their phones 
Wow. Like in the pandemic, they just unplugged their phones. Well, they were th- like, we can't deal with this shit. Like you just couldn't contact anybody. Uh-huh. And so here I am, like, I was like supposed to have my visa interview, what, like April, 2020? Yeah. In Australia, which Australia were great. Like they were good, but my processing documents were still with KCC, which is actually why I was able to come back. Cause like mm-hmm. the Australian consulate didn't have the, my immigration, yeah. my like migrant visa stuff. So they're like, oh yeah, sure. Non-immigrant visa. You already been living in the U S granted. Yeah. Whereas if it had been like three weeks later, they would have been like, well, why are you trying to migrate? And mm. also trying to not migrate. Yeah. But they were like, literally like they're so underfunded. They're so behind. They're so backed up. And they just at one point unplugged their phones and like all of these people were just fucked. And it's happening across the board. Cause yeah. like there was only two visas I knew of. Well, three visas I knew of. There were like 20 visas. Yeah, but there was only like three or four that I knew of very well. Like I knew like student visas. I knew H-1B visas. Mm -hmm. And I knew EB-5 visas. Mm -hmm. And I knew EB-5 visas because we, for for clients, like real estate developers, we used to use EB-5 visas for them to raise money from foreign investors. Mm -hmm. And at the time, EB-5 visas were like $550,000 per visa. Wow. And like rich Asians wearing bathing ape were buying them. Shits. Oh, yeah. If you have money, you can always yeah. get So, yeah. like, they were buying them shits from everywhere and it mm. was pulling up with mad Louis Vuitton shit. And I was like, yo, what the hell? Even that visa. So, like, the visa center for the EB5 closed in June 30th. June 30th of this year, it closed. Just forever. Like, it closed. Like, the program ended, right? And Biden didn't restart the program. So, like, there are, like, thousands of people who had, like, submitted their I feel their so sorry for those dudes, though. Of course, because they have money, <laughs> right? But You're paying, like, half a million dollars. For, what you say, well, now it's, it's um, $900,000 for that same visa. And, like, they usually process 20,000 people per year at 900,000. So, like, this is how the buildings got That's built. That's the thing. But this is also the thing that made me so mad about all of the immigration policy. Because I was just like, because oh, especially when I was, like, looking at the diversity visa stuff online and, like, all of the immigration policy. And obviously I was following it on Twitter. And obviously I wasn't saying much because, like, I don't want to say anything. Mm-hmm. But, like, people are like, these freaking freeloaders are out. And I'm like, it's a pandemic. I can't get any social services. Yeah. I can't benefit from any public help. Yeah. I can't vote. Yeah. And I pay tax. Yeah. And I pay fucking visa costs. Yeah. Like we pay so much. You make so much fucking money. Like yeah. even from the diversity visa program that like, it's like what? Fi- it really costs like $500 if you're doing it outside the country. Even from that, that's like 55,000 people with $500 fee. And then you've got the people who are processing like, in country, it was more than 55 because some people don't get it. So it's what, 70,000 people processed yeah. for a $500 fee. Then you get people in the country who have to pay an extra $1,200. Plus they may be paying a lawyer. Plus they're paying for a physical. Plus they're paying for this and that. Like all the bits and pieces together. It's like when you add it up, it's so much money into the U.S. economy. It just makes absolutely no sense the rhetoric around it being like, these guys are freeloaders. Like I pay tax and I can't vote. Like that sucks. Like yeah. that fucking sucks. Yeah. I pay more tax than fucking Jeff Bezos. Like, <laughs> and people calling me a freeloader. Seriously. Yeah. Like yeah. it's ridiculous. It's, it's insane. And like I was saying earlier, it's the narrative. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's the narrative. The narrative is all over that. And once you stick a narrative, it's hard to shake it Absolutely. because I would, I never thought about immigrants like that. Like when I was seeing, these people in China were putting together half a million dollars or a million dollars or $1.5 million to send three kids 
to the U.S., I was like, oh, this is immigration? <laughs> this is crazy. Like, and it completely changed my perspective on immigration because companies were raising 15, 20, 25 billion dollars for a real estate project off immigration money. And they were like, yo, like, yeah, and and like we're only gonna give you like two percent interest on this money for real. So so like even then on top of that, like you make this investment. They were like, you're buying the visa. So yeah. you don't really care about how much money we're gonna give you. But like off that five fifty, if we were to count like how much money was made off of that five hundred and fifty thousand dollar investment, they probably made three X or four X the amount on it. But yeah. they didn't have to pay that as a return. Yeah. They had to, they got to pocket that, which is why they were doing it. Like we were running a factory on, on these visas, on these EB fives, and that's closed. Which just tells me that, like, it's got to be so much worse for the people who aren't paying $900,000 for their yep. visa. Truthfully, yeah. it is. Yeah. And you just get these emails and you're like, I don't know what this means. Like, is am, are, we, are we good? I, I keep getting these emails. It was like, your paperwork has been received. I'm like, I haven't sent it. And then I sent my paperwork and they're like, please make sure you do this. And I'm like, do you have it? I and thought I'm you like, received it. And I'm like, I've got to wait until I have, like, a an afternoon to, like, sit down and get on the phone and be on hold for like a million years yeah. only to speak to someone who doesn't give a shit yeah. and probably isn't going to help that much. But like, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty stressful. It's a lot. So current immigration law dates back to like 1954, but the last time it was like really, really, really updated, like significantly updated beyond like executive order, of course, was in 1996. So where, a while ago. Yeah. Where, where, you know, the only legal route was by, like, obtaining asylum. Now, you hear asylum and you think about so many different instances. Mm -hmm. Just getting green-lighted for asylum, being able to come here on asylum is insane. And there's, like, a line of, like, one million people trying yeah, to get asylum in the U.S. Yeah. And even in most recent times, you think about the Haitians who kind of came over to the United States over at the Texas border. Did your mom seek asylum or did she come? No, my mom straight up came. Yeah, my mom straight up came through no asylum. But a lot of folks do. There's so many different definitions mm -hmm. and so many different reasons. So you can come here for political asylum. You can come here as a result of significant war in your country, things of that nature. But there's so many people waiting for them. Yeah. Right. And and that process a million people is, is a lot of people. Yeah. That's and, why I always hate this like narrative of like just get in line. It's like a million people long line. You can totally see why people would not wait in line. And then on top of that, like it's so difficult. The process you first of all, you need a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Like that's where you're hearing people get immigration lawyers mm -hmm. and like the deportation proceedings. Putting more money in. into the US economy. Yeah. yeah. And and the and the like deportation proceedings for those are like insane. Like when I was in school, we had a whole immigration law clinic, and like some of the cases they would tell us about would be like nuts. Like people with kids, or people who like came here because their fucking town was bombed or some shit like that, and like one or two things happened, and now they're at a like deportation proceeding, right? So like at my school. They provide like sliding scale legal help or sometimes free legal help to folks who are like facing that type of stuff. But that's because, you know, the law is just not necessarily on our side and the law hasn't been updated to like cover like a lot of things that happened this millennium. And also know? like legal stuff is hard. Like I just send my shit to y'all. Like I don't know what the fuck anything says that I'm signing ever. Yeah. If you even if you get a lawyer, it takes about a year to complete. 
It's a really long asylum. time. Like an asylum application. Like yeah. On average. And that's the application. That's not even like, like getting that whole in. process takes at least a year. Minimum. Yeah. So apparently the whole asylum thing was the World War II situation with Jews in Nazi Germany. Because America um, didn't let them in, right? At the beginning. Right. America didn't really let much folks in in the beginning. Mm. But then, like, Jews were kind of like folks where people were like, oh, we don't really want them here at some point. But then after World War II, they were like, oh, this is really fucked up what happened with World War II. So we're going to grant all these Jews asylum. And it, it, it also started early in World War II. Like, mm. it wasn't like the war's over, we heard what happened, come through. It was like when Hitler took power and he started, like, all right, y'all got to wear, like, Stars. Jewish stars on your arms and shit and like they started like taking away businesses and like taking away their homes like people started escaping to Britain and then like seeking asylum in the US Britain was giving asylum but then when Britain started getting pressed from um Nazi Germany that's when they started that's when the US really started like allowing asylum here in the US for Jewish people but either way like when it comes to America and what America's goal is to achieve, especially in wartime, is to, like, also promote democracy. Because that's what, like, the World War was. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's what the Cold War also was. Which went right? on for a minute. Right. So, like, essentially, America also used asylum as a tool for, like, spreading democracy and freedom across the world. So, like, you could seek asylum if you wanted to be in a place of freedom. You know what I mean? So people would come to the U.S. Mm. and, like, adopt this idea, which is why, like, also the process of immigration involves so much of, like, do you know America? Do you believe in America? Are you going to speak good on America? Yeah. Right? Because you, technically speaking, are a prom you're a promoter of America to your family back home. Yeah. Right? So so I, I see that logically. Yeah. This is definitely something we're going to cover in later episodes like mm -hmm. which is what we kind of touched on in the beginning which is like the propaganda behind america yeah and like this kind of fits into that and like the soft power idea yeah so the asylum route's like really the only path for people who are poor i know that aside from the diversity lottery which is like yeah. such a small amount of people small, yeah but like that's the reason honestly the reason why i ended up finishing my degree was to come here wow we need a degree for most every ah visa. that makes sense yeah except for like I mean, I think for the H-1B, you need it or Job. you need a specific need skill specific set. Specific skill set, yeah. And, like, you don't need need it for the E3, but, like, pretty much you do. Mm. Like, if you don't have it, you have to show, like, 12 years of experience, which, like, I think is completely ridiculous. It's, like, blatantly classist, but that's why yeah. it's much easier if you have, like, money or, like, education or can come here for school yeah or come here for like a lot of my because that's why you see the campuses are like that like yeah. a lot of the like very elite campuses have like significant immigration pop immigrant population my roommate used education to travel everywhere. yeah she was just like oh i guess i'll go well she has a zambian passport like she's not gonna get anything I'll just go so to she's just like here. oh i'll just go to school in australia i'll just go to yeah. school in america yeah. like if you can do it and interestingly enough like that whole idea of getting really educated people or getting people with particular skill set like that's a very key element of migration mm. because migration helped build the american economy mm -hmm. and interestingly enough like for those who are gonna like listen to our uh, bonus episode like the different cultures in new york you actually see them fill certain ranks of certain like social services in the city so like a lot of irish people are cops and it's been like that for many, many, many years, even from the first, like, group. 
yeah. of people who like came to New York from Ireland. And then obviously, like when folks got involved with politics, you had like Tammany Hall, which had a lot of like Irish influence and like a lot of these jobs were passed on to like a lot of Irish folks. Same thing with Italians. A lot of Italians work for the FDNY or for the sanitation department. Interesting. Yeah. And like a lot of people from Caribbean cultures, they work for the MTA or they work for social services. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like really interesting to see like these migration patterns and how they even materialize in the types of jobs that people have in certain cities. That's all really interesting. I think it's time for us to take a break. Okay. And when we get back, we're going to hear from some people about their experiences. Word. Let's go. Hi, my name is Patsy Dudney. I'm from Mandeville, Jamaica, West Indies. I decided to move to America because in those days, it was very hard to get my children into school when they left, when they left high school. So I decided to, to come to New York for, especially for them, they're getting, they would have got better and free education. It was a hard transition for me because my husband didn't want to come to New York. He didn't want to leave Jamaica. And I saw the opportunities to be here. So I decided to do it alone. It was hard for them because they weren't accustomed to doing things for themselves. They were accustomed to having a helper to do Actually, everything, they had to start to wash the dishes on their own. They had to go to the laundromat. They had to make um, clean the house. They had more chores They had usual. more chores to do than they were doing in Jamaica. They didn't have any chores to do in Jamaica because they had help to do everything for them. So they were spoiled. So they started, they was crying every day. Why is it we have to be here? Why we don't send for the, send for the helper to come here? And they couldn't understand. Everything was why, why, why? I had to do a lot, everything. And I had to take a um, low-paying job because I wasn't qualified in this country to do anything because then I, back home in Jamaica, I used to have my own business. So it was really a hell of a move that sometimes I wondered if I did the right thing. But I just kept going. I wouldn't even call anybody back home to say, hi, how are you doing? Because... I didn't want him to ask me what kind of work I was doing. How my and I just didn't correspond or communicate with anybody back home anymore. So it was really, really hard. I am glad that I I did it on my own and they are exposed definitely to all the opportunities and what goes on in this country. And they have a mind of their own, they can decide what they want to do. Right? I did my best. I tried to send them as best as I could to college. Whoever dropped out, dropped out. But I did my best. And they are on their own now. And I'm proud of them because when I look back at the, their peers in Jamaica, they are not as advanced as my children. They are still under mommies and daddies' arms. 
and whatever fall off their father and mother's head fall on their shoulder. So they didn't still have the opportunity to go to college and things like that. Only the well-to-do had that opportunity where they could send their kids to school by because they had to pay out of pocket. But if you're a middle-class citizen, you didn't have that money to do that. So the best thing to do is to get the children up here and let them learn from the experience that they got, you know, where they were living. You know, I can look back now, I'll be 75 years old in the next month, and I can look back and say I'm happy that I did because they all know, both, all three of them now can stand on their own. They have their own, they have children, and they have to set example now for their kids. God gave me the strength and the health that I was able to do sometimes two jobs, sometimes three jobs, you know, depending on what I did because I believe in whatever you do does not degrade you as long as you're getting paid for it. If I could give them what they wanted, then I would just give them what they need. And they just have to satisfy. They learn to satisfy with whatever I have. My name is Lungoe. I'm a Zambian citizen and have been living in New York for four years. One of the bigger reality checks I had was the anticipation of a culture shift. Now, I'd expected that to be the case with New York being a melting pot and all, but having lived in other countries like South Africa, Namibia, the UK, and Australia, it did dawn on me that being in New York meant blending all of the third culture kid abilities into like one mixed bag of everything just to survive living in New York. And some key areas that were quite important was building community and having like a found family, plus also establishing what it really meant to hustle in a fast-paced city like this. I had to unlearn the hustle culture for the sake of my well-being and find better ways of making career moves that didn't result in burnout, or at least being more aware of when I was getting to burnout. Overall, I did use education to travel, picking up degrees along the way. And with that, it meant finding a new meaning of what a dream really meant, especially depending on which part of the world I was living in at the time. And right now it's changed meaning. So, and I kind of like it because it's just made me grow as someone who's come to a different country and is experiencing new things all the time. Yeah, it's kind of in a nutshell what it's been like being an immigrant here. We got green card in 1997. I applied to, to for green card US because I believe America is the place of good opportunity for my family first and then for myself. And that proved to be true because um, my family, especially my children, they went to good schools here in the U.S. Then they completed their school somewhere else and then they went for college in Sudan and then they came back. And thank God, now they're um, having good opportunity here in in U.S. For myself, I also got good opportunity. Being a physician, I was trained in uh, my country. Then uh, I came here to U.S. also to uh, get trained here. After training, I got also uh, a a nice job here as a physician in U.S., which is very good uh, opportunity for me to... uh, training in a third world country like Sudan, and then to have training here in U.S., first world country. Everybody is saying that, even the British people. They say that America is the land of opportunity. If you want good opportunity, go to U.S. Then the opportunity is different. You might find financial opportunity. You might find social opportunity. You might find 
whatever opportunity it is according to what you are looking for. But you will find it in U.S. U.S. is the land of opportunity. Finas bilgu shogul, finas bilgu gruj, finas bilgu mzaari, finas kida freedom, speech, freedom of speech, democracy. I'm Kara, and I guess I've got a bit of a backwards migrant experience. See, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I've never actually lived there. I got my citizenship from my American father, who'd migrated to Australia before I was born. On one hand, I feel really American. I know how important it is to my family, who've only been there for a couple of generations. I also have to pay U.S. taxes wherever I am in the world. And every time I enter the U.S., I get welcomed home. But on the other hand, I feel kind of excluded by the fact that I've never actually lived there properly. And... I can't even register to vote, which makes me feel really powerless. First and foremost, Miss Pat really remind me of my aunties. <laughs> she remind me of all of my aunties rolled in one. That's nice. And a sprinkle of my mom's. Nice. Yeah. Like everything she was saying. Yeah, I sent them. Some of them dropped out, but I sent them. Yeah, the shade was good. The like shade. if they dropped out, it's not my problem. I did what I did and it's up to them now. I did my job. Yeah. <laughs> what? That's exactly how my mom talks about me and my siblings. <laughs> She'd be like, I don't care if they fucked up. I did my part. <laughs> I'd be like, I, 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 I. It's the first time that in a, I would say, podcast setting, I would also say in a conversation about immigration and about life in another country that wasn't Eurocentric mm. that I've heard people publicly say that they've had like help in the house. It's so funny. Cause like hilariously, I had this conversation yesterday yeah. with a guy from Indonesia when he was talking about the issues of living in America. And he was like, yeah, I really miss having that help though. It's, like they want us to do everything here. <laughs> like dude, that's my whole life. It's crazy. My mom grew up with help in the house. My dad had help in the house in the United States. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, he had help. My best friend has help in, well, my best friend's mom yeah. has help in her house today, right now, in wow. Long Island. Does it make you, <laughs> it makes me so uncomfortable. Like, I've been in situations where I've stayed with friends in other countries and there's, like, help in the house. And it just makes me feel like, I don't mind, like, having a cleaner. I've had a cleaner before. I think that, you know, it's something I hate doing. And if I can pay someone, like, a little bit of money every couple of weeks to do a deep clean of my house, I'm happy to do it. But, like, having someone around just, like, cleaning up after me. Like, I've done dishes with help in the house before just because I can't like help myself yeah you know <laughs> just yeah. so i can help myself but like because I, I felt so awkward i was like no no no, i got it and they're like no no no, we got it it's just like to walk away from that you come back and it's all done like it, i guess i can see the appeal yeah it's definitely like interesting because i grew up in the u.s without help yeah and helping the house and then um like i only like had help when i like visited my dad but she would like cook and clean but like i didn't live with my dad so like my siblings like my siblings for my dad had help all the time. Okay. But when I went to Haiti to visit my grandmother, she had help. And it was like so weird for me. I was just like, oh shit, like I don't gotta wash the dishes. 
after I'm done. Like in my in my house, in my house right now, if you go visit my parents' house, uh, we have like sticky notes. Like we have notes that are taped to the sink that say, I am not your maid, wash after yourself. <laughs> so like so to much. go from that environment to a place where it's like people are looking at you weird because you're washing your own dish is like, it's insane. Yeah. And um it's, yeah it's it's <laughs> it's a normal thing it's 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 a normal thing in the caribbean to have help obviously it's it's based on a like class system mm. right like not everybody has help in the home but i find that more people have help in the home in the caribbean than in the u.s which which is also really interesting I mean, I think that like living in New York, we all deserve to have help in the home <laughs> <We> <laughs> just to space. survive with this city. Can you imagine what you could do if you didn't have to worry about house shit? Oh my God. Ugh, I just got back from a work trip and like everything's still packed. I was like, I can't even deal with this right now. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely would make city life living easier, but at the same time, it would make city life living a little bit more difficult just because we don't got no fucking space out here. That's you true. Know what I mean, in New York, it's like you're gonna get help in a in your one bedroom or in your studio apartment. Where's your help gonna sleep? You know, <laughs> like so. It's it's definitely different, but it was great to hear that stated publicly. Yeah. Just because it's in the United States, at least we associate help with like really really rich people who live in Greenwich, Connecticut, or certain counties in like California or Florida or whatever. Uh we associate help with like the super wealthy. Yeah. And then to hear that, yeah, like, you Just know regular like middle class like folks. Yeah. Which which in many ways also just makes me think like is is the United States the land of opportunity for real? Like I'm trying to be where well, y'all at? It's <laughs> really the question. Yeah, like I'm trying to be where y'all at. Where y'all got help all over the place. You know what I'm saying? But um, but I thought that was really really interesting. Also, when you hear about all of Miss Pat's worries, like her her journey or her struggle with migrating here, it's unique. But it's unique, and I've only heard, like, maybe two or three other people have a similar experience where they were with someone back home and left them to come to the States. And and it's even more unique because the woman left the man. Usually it's the man that goes first mm. and then, like, goes and reaches back, gets his wife and kids and brings them to the States. But, like, to hear a woman left her man that was really interesting for me to hear. And it just, for me, it's like very much this like woman's empowerment move. It's like a superpower move, which I really love because it kind of takes away from that stigma of, you know, um, women, specifically women from like more conservative cultures are like reliant on men. Well, she doesn't sound reliant on anybody. Yeah, she's just like, I don't need none of y'all motherfuckers. Like, <laughs> yeah, yo, look, I'm gonna set it up for you. You fuck up, that's on you. <laughs> like, um, so it was really interesting to hear Miss Pat's take on a migrant experience. What about you? What was your favorite? I mean, we don't need to pick favorites. I thought they were all really interesting. <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, Miss Pat's story and like there is so much audio that we're not sharing in the episode about her so it was just really great to hear her journey i mean lunga waits my roommate so of course <laughs> by car is one of my best friends of course both great stories 
Lou, Lou really does. She does use education to live places. She's like, I want to live in this place. What degree am I going to get? It's just too many degrees. I forbid her from doing any more. Because, <laughs> you know, she does one. She has to leave. <laughs> she's got student debt. She's like, like, she's like, just let it go. No, you're a black woman, but you can stop. I'm finna have to go to Nigeria for a little bit. Get this (laughs) master's in finance. (laughs) Yeah, but definitely like, yeah, her experience, like having, having an Australian passport is very different from having a Zambian passport. Ah, And something comes up a lot in our house in terms of even just things like, oh, like if you want to, and obviously right now I can't leave the US, but ordinarily if I want to go somewhere, there's not really ever a barrier for me to going somewhere if I just wanted to pick up and go visit a country. Whereas for her, it's a lot more complicated. Got it. Um, She can't just like go, but yeah. And Cara's experience, uh, I always find like quite funny because she can't vote. Yeah. And she was like born, (laughs) born here. She she wasn't born here, but her dad's American. Yeah. Her dad's American. Yeah. I messed that up. Her dad's American. Yep. But, and she has her citizenship through her dad. Yeah. Which she has to pay tax. She, yeah. She has, this is how I knew about the tax thing. Yeah. She's had to pay tax for the states her whole life. She can't vote. Can't vote. I always wonder how that, because she's not a military child, right? No. Yeah. So, like, I always wondered how that worked with people who were born on military bases from mm. American parents. They count in as other being countries. American they, born. Ah, because it's important. You have to be American born to be president. So if you're uh, born on a military base, I think it counts. But it if you're counts. born outside the U.S., you can't be a president, even you're, if you're born American. So if you're born off base, mm. that's it. Yeah. Okay, got it. It also just shows me, like, like how much the IRS is in, like, everybody's pockets. Like, you could literally never have been lived, never have lived here, but because you're American, they're in your pockets. Like, yeah. that's ridiculous. It's a, it's a genuine consideration towards, like, getting green card citizenship all of that you're like do i want to pay the u.s money for the rest of my life yeah and and a part of it makes me think like because she didn't ask for it right no. she wasn't like dad bless me right like but car is very proudly a u.s citizen okay yeah because like i think about it from the from this perspective it's like all right if you never really chose to do it and you just got it right what if you just you can give up your citizenship. It's yeah. just really hard to get it back again. Yeah. So it's like, so, that's so I wonder how many people are just like, like people who were not born here, mm. who just like got their citizenship from their parents. Like, I wonder how, like how many of those folks like just say, fuck it. I'm never going to use this thing anyway. So like, you should, should look into that statistic. Yeah. Cause that would actually be like really interesting to see because, mm. you know, she's probably getting an extra whatever amount of dollars getting taken out of her check every two weeks or, you know, she's paying the taxes. So every year, right. And that, that money adds up. Like Mm. when, when you think about that, like when you think about the money that she could have taken and put into whether she wanted to invest the money in a stock market or. Yeah. Car is also a doctor. so (laughs) Right. So it's probably a lot of tax, you know what I'm saying? So it's money that she could have, you know, contributed to buying a home Mm. in Australia or something like that. Right. And the IRS has that money. Like the U S treasury has it. She never benefited. She's probably, she's not on American roads like that. You I mean, I mean? Do, we, do we even benefit from it on our American roads? I don't know. I well, trip over like every day. Well, we get to use them at least. <laughs> true, true. You know, that's why we get to complain about them because yeah. we're using them, right? <laughs> like, but it's a whole other thing when you're just never using them. 
Yeah. You know, she's not using the American public school system. She's no. not using, literally, she's not using a damn thing. Yeah. You got to get over here, Kara. Right? Kara like, will like, probably be like use your money. Come use your yeah. money real quick. That was really interesting that you were able to, like, source that. Yeah. Source Kara. Yeah. That's that to, source. <laughs> to source Kara. Yeah. No, I've had this conversation a few times. So I really wanted to bring that perspective in. Oh, yeah. But they're all really interesting perspectives and all such different relationships with America and migration and, and all of that. But overwhelmingly, like, obviously, the main reason everybody's moving here, well, at least our first three speakers, is opportunity. Yeah. And it's just kind of a different flavor for the three of the three of them. Um, yeah. In yeah. how that opportunity, like Abbas was able to come over here and work as a physician pretty much straight away, whereas Miss Pat's skills were maybe not so easily transferred over or more difficult to kind of execute on in an American setting. Yeah, I, I, I find that interesting as well, because there are a lot of people who like who move to Canada. There's a lot of folks right now who move to Canada. I think if they move to Ontario and they have like doctor degrees that certain degrees are just not accepted or licenses are not reciprocated in Ontario. So now you have like a lot of these folks who have like, they have PhDs or just doctoral degrees and some, or, or they're at that high graduate level and they're applying for wall street jobs because they can't practice in the area where they like focus their work. Yeah, I think it depends on, like, the institutions and where they're accredited and yeah. whatnot. And I think it's, like, more specialization that doesn't transfer over as well. Yeah. But I don't know as much about that. Yeah, and, and it makes me wonder about, you know, folks who come here and, and like, immediately become physicians. Or, yeah. like, I've had professors who are from India. Yeah. And I think it just depends on the institutions yeah. and whatnot. Fun story. When I first moved here, I went to an illegal dentist in New Jersey. They were like fully like qualified in the countries they were from and just like legally couldn't practice. And so they had like a full illegal setup in their living room. Wow. With like cameras, like check police raids. I was really poor and I broke my front tooth. And oh it was my like a hundred bucks for like a cleaning and my teeth got fixed. And they were pretty good actually. Like the thing fell off like straight away and I went and they did it again for free. And then I was back in Australia at the dentist uh, when I was back last. And I was like, is it okay? Because, like, I told them the story. And they were like, it's actually pretty good. I was like, okay. Wow. So, <laughs> was cool. it the most pleasant experience I've had at a dentist? But um, these things exist. And it just, like, serves all of the, I guess, like, for the most part, like, undocumented people who don't have yeah. insurance or access to health care. And this guy had just been trained like by his mom who was a dentist where they're from wow it's, it's really a uh we're all in this together <laughs> look like you're undocumented i'm undocumented when it comes to this job yeah, I'm doing. so we're all just gonna have this whole underground dentistry look, ring i'm finna give you the undocumented rate <laughs> you oh. don't say nothing i don't say nothing we're good it like, was yeah it was a really fun story to tell i ended up at this um Fox TV news presenters housed in a discussion about healthcare in America. He's like very libertarian. Yeah. And I told this story and every American was like, what the fuck? <laughs> no one had ever like, we're like on Central Park West overlooking Central Park at this like fancy house. The richest. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, I went to this illegal dentist. Tell me more about libertarianism. Right, right across the water. <laughs> right across the water, by the way. <laughs> Y'all are doing great that this exists. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's crazy? I, 
I actually think like libertarians would fully support. Yeah. This. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. I guess that's a free market in practice, right? Yeah. But it's not very. Um, yeah. Look, it's it's a life experience that I can put on my belt. I went yeah. a couple of times there, and you know, it got me through my first few years when I didn't really have good insurance. Yeah. Anybody needs a legal health care <laughs> We got the plug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got that. <laughs> He'll send me send me a text on the uh, on uh, signal on signal. I'll give you the info. I think both of us just have like so many personal experiences with migration. We have certainly gone on a lot this episode, so I feel like we're gonna kind of go more into this topic in our next couple of episodes. So we'll be talking more about assimilation and and whatnot. But some fun facts about how this sits politically right now, or some like things to consider. Definitely the narrative that we hear is that the left wing is like open borders and the right wing is like closed borders, but it wasn't always like this. So previous administrations have actually, like previous right wing administrations have actually had really much more liberal um, immigration policies as we discussed before. It's because they got paid from it. Well, it's good for the economy. Yeah. Which is like, that's the thing that's kind of infuriating from this side. Um, so, you know, well, I mean, A, there's a lot of support for immigration across the board. So only 9% of people believe that immigration is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a wrong kind of like perception of it. So Americans as a whole estimate that 40% of the U.S. population is immigrants when really it's only 14%. Wow. But the amount of like money and stuff that this creates, the amount of, you know, jobs it creates, it's just, I don't know. It's getting a bad rap. It's been very highly politicized, but it's like what built America. And and when it is like stated in 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 the news, in the media, <laughs> right? Um, I find that it's oftentimes they use like hard numbers. So let's say three million illegal immigrants. You know what I mean? But they won't like contextualize it. Yeah. Right. Um, when I was doing the research on the EB-5 visa, I found that it was like 10,000 people, no, 20,000 people on a yearly average use this portion of the visa, right? And then obviously when we spoke, spoke talked about um, asylum, it was like there are 1 million people on the line for asylum. There are 300 plus million Americans. Mm. In the United States. Yeah, it's like 350 million, right? Yeah. So, like, we're talking about 1 million, right, on the asylum line. We're talking about 20,000 on a yearly basis for the EB-5. So, like... They're the immigrants that we, like, quote-unquote want. Those are the ones we like because they got money. money. (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're dropping. They're dropping a million plus for their pass. But, like... But, I mean, we will... So, like, I, I heard this the other day, and I haven't fact-checked it, and I don't have it in front of me. But someone, it was on Twitter or something, so, like, take that as what it is. But effectively what someone was saying is the reason why we have a job shortage is because all the people who were coming over here as migrants aren't working. So, like, because of the halt in, it's not, like, the only reason, but because of the halt in immigration, if you're thinking about it, like, because people can't come here, they're not taking jobs. Like, there's a massive backlog in heaps of things. Like, if I hadn't been able to get my visa now, I wouldn't be able to work. Ah. And so all of these jobs are like this job shortage is like a lot a bunch of people who are like coming over here with jobs can no longer do that or even people just like 
students coming over to work uh so to study and then working part-time or like um for i think australia and ireland they have this working holiday visa program so you've got young people coming and working there's a lot of different flow-on effects this has had Mm. um so wow is it oh and by the way the kcc so full full disclosure we recorded the first half of this episode and now we're recording the second half a couple of days later the kcc as i said like they had turned off their phones in the pandemic I tried to call them the other day. They haven't turned their phones back on. Their phones are still off. They, they've got a message basically like, you can't call us. Damn. Bad luck. <laughs> Who would have thought we had like a supply chain issue on labor? <laughs> Seriously. 350 million people in America. Right. What was also interesting is a lot of folks retired early because of the pandemic. And um, some folks are considering returning back to the job market simply because of the increase in pay. Yeah. Like how much companies are willing to pay for talent right now, and like the recruiting industry is like on fire. Oh yeah, right now yeah, they're like doing it's a good time thing. to be looking for a job. Yeah, so so like I always tell folks, yo yo yo, go back to work like right now, mm. stack your bread, and if they act stupid next year, you got mad money saved up. You know what I'm saying? Because whether you were actually overpaid or whatever you just got way more money than you would have had if you if it was like a normal job climate right the legal industry especially right um the legal industry is like throwing money at Mm. people like hand over fist because like everybody's at war for the available lawyers so they're like you what do you want you know you want to work remote sure some are like some are a bit more stringent they're like no you got to show up but we'll overpay you but obviously the thing that everybody's worried about which is why a lot of folks have decided like to not go back to work is that, you know, this payday is temporary, mm-hmm. right? Once the, once things normalize, it's gonna be a huge amount of layoffs and rehires at lower rates, which I understand that. I get that. Just take the money now. Take the money and run. If you can. Yeah. If you're not bound to an employer like I am. Yeah. Take the money and run. Or if you can negotiate a bit harder say hey cool i want my salary and my job guaranteed Mm. for two three four years um unless i do some gross violation or whatever like the negotiation the the negotiating power is on your side right now and and if you're an immigrant who still can work go after it make your mark now you know what i mean and then you know, whatever company you're at, show them how much of an asset you are, and then try to, you know, move up as much as you can in this period mm-hmm. of time. I mean, things are going to be weird. Something that probably completely, you know, blows by you every time you put in the job application is almost every job application asks you if you require sponsorship. Yeah. And it's, it's complicated for Australians because we do require in a way, but it's like much easier. So when they think sponsorship, they're thinking H1B. Yeah. But the E3 is super easy. So I just used to hit no. And then I would explain it to them. Oh. Had like a little graphic. So to be like, no, 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 because I don't want you to be deterred by the H1B because that's very complicated. Yeah. But I can like self-manage an E3 and it costs $200. So like ah. I can pay for it too, frankly. So like it's different but yeah every every job application the e3 pretty much so yeah. is that australia specific yeah okay got it all right uh, it is i thought that was similar like... to like the t what is it the t2 the canadian one okay except canadians do this on the border which to me is like terrifying because yeah. like you kind of rock up and you're like hey i have a job here are my papers i've just packed up my whole life and they're like nah yeah you know? <laughs> like, whereas at least with australia we have to leave and we can't go to canada we have to go like 
away, far away. They're, but um, like I did Canadians. one in France. Oh, I did one in France and one in Australia. But um, yeah, it's definitely a much easier process than any of the others. So incredibly fortunate on that. Front. Yeah. The Canadians are like, now you can't leave. <laughs> Stay. I thought the E3 and the T2, I thought you were putting us on to like this immigrant loophole for folks who are trying. No, to like, no, no. Yeah, I was like, it's I was only like, yo. if you're Australian. I was and like, I would yo. not do that. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, They're just I, country specific. Like, I think Ireland has some like deals with the US as well. They've always got deals with the US. But Migrant listeners of, of Call America are like, Wow, I just heard some shit. <laughs> yeah, this is what I mean when I say, like, you know, living with Lungaway, it's like a completely different, we're in completely different situations yeah. um, with that because it's not so, it's not so easy. Right. You have different citizenships. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, to close out the episode, I wanted to bring it back to the cult behavior. So this is the first time we're like, and this is what we're going to get into more next episode when we're talking more about like assimilation and, and all of that. But like, the cult behavior this week was subservience to the leader or group requires members to cut ties with family and friends and radically alter the personal goals and activities they had before joining the group, which the U.S. doesn't make you renounce your citizenship for other countries, which I wasn't sure if they did because I know you can't be dual citizen with every country. Not but that's everyone, usually on yeah. the other country's side, not the U.S. side. Yeah, I have mine with Canada. Yeah, so two-thirds of the world's countries are allowed to be dual citizens with the U.S. That's 2015 data. I don't know if it's changed they're not making you do it on paper, but I think what we're going to talk about next episode, which will be really interesting, is how you sort of, and like we kind of heard this with our, our speakers throughout the episode, is like the idea of like the mythical norm and like what is American. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's the kind of, it's like the soft power, hard power thing. Yeah. Like, yes, we don't make you give up your citizenship, but like how much of like your culture and stuff are you giving up? Yeah. So that's going to be the next episode. It's going to be lit. so thank you all for listening our next episode as i said it's about the mythical norm it will be released on december 14th cult america is co-hosted and produced by us lisa charlotte and carl joseph black our production partner is three strings media with audio engineering by ellie bridgetta our research assistant is thea smith our artwork is by stella illustrated and the soundtrack is by king virtue and so soon if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. You can also access bonus episodes on Patreon at patreon.com slash cultusapod. We release bonus episodes there and we cover American movies. And this week we're covering Gangs of New York, which is like such a good choice. Thank you, Samori. Oh, yeah. If you want to get in touch, please head over to cultusapod.com where you can leave comments on episodes or contact us through our contact form. You can also find us on Twitter at cultusapod. Or if you prefer Instagram, you can follow our network at thisis3sm number three not the word three or you can follow carl at c joe black if you want to be featured on an upcoming episode please send a voice clip to uncle sam at cultusapod.com or through our website the next topic that we'll be talking about is the grind so if you have some thoughts about working in america and the work culture in america we would love to hear them and that's it that's a wrap I said my ancestors ain't fight for me to be taking shit from no crackers. I said, I said, I said my ancestors ain't fight for me to be taking shit from no crackers. Got that bishop up in their chest. That's what got my king and queen captured. Running through the shoots and climbing up ladders. Trying to duck the noose they used to free taggers. Traveling the routes to move to free status. Had to be the best at hide and seek. Shamalama. My ancestors ain't die for me to be answering to no masters.